morning, we're going to be in uh, the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter number 7. And can you believe it? We're already now halfway through the book of Hosea. And uh, I tell you, I have learned so much uh, just from studying this book and what the Lord has been teaching me in my own personal uh, faith journey. And I hope it's been an encouragement to you as well. Uh, I think so many times we, we kind of overlook... Uh, some parts of God's word, uh, primarily because we're maybe not too familiar with that. Um, maybe because it's just doesn't seem like something that we can apply to our lives. Um, but I have been challenged, uh, just looking through the book of Hosea, uh, recently, uh, just in my own life. And, you know, as we've been looking here, um, we've already looked at several different, um, chapters here like for example in in chapter number one we saw that uh god's love was displayed uh to the unfaithful wife as the unfaithful wife went after other gods um we saw in chapter two that god was displaying his love through his faithfulness as the faithful husband in chapter three it showed us the wonderful picture of redemption um, not only through Hosea's wife, but even through the nation of Israel, had God continued to pursue after the nation of Israel. And in chapter 4, it showed us the courtroom setting that God has with his people. And yet through his controversy that he had with his people, God still showed his faithful love towards his people. That love never ended. In chapter number 5, it showed us God's judgment, but yet through his judgment, God lovingly provided Jesus Christ as provision for sin. And in chapter number 6, as we looked at last week, showed us the very heart of God as that he continually provides steadfast love and mercy towards his people. And in this week here, chapter number 7, we're going to look at God's description And God's going to go through and he's going to give us several different pictures of how he views the nation of Israel. If we could sum up the book of Hosea so far, it would be this. God doesn't love us based upon what we do or what we cannot do. God does not love us just because we can keep our noses clean. God loves us solely based upon the fact that he provided Jesus Christ as a provision for our sin. And our love is based in Jesus Christ. God loves us because he sent his son Jesus to die for us. So this morning we're going to look here at Hosea 7. And we're going to look at some pictures, some descriptions that God has for his people. Now, if you're like me, if you were born before, I don't know, let's just say 1995. I was born in 1983. Um, But I think that's pretty much everybody in here. You probably have several of these lying around in a box somewhere, maybe in a photo album. Uh, Today, we got everything on the phone. We got it on the cloud. If you're like, what's the cloud? Don't worry about it. You don't really need to know. Um, But... (laughs) You probably have several of these lying around in a closet somewhere. And from time to time, you probably go through and you look at them because they captured a certain point in time. They captured who you were as a person, maybe captured a a family member that you remember. But these are pictures that you look at. And sometimes you go through them and you go, wow, man, that was a long time ago. Can you believe what kind of clothes I was wearing back then? You have all these descriptions of things that you have here. 
I have some pictures here uh, from my life. Um, I didn't get a chance to get them scanned and put them up on the screen. Um, but here's one of me and a friend. This was when I was down in Corpus Christi, Texas at the uh, Lighthouse Home for Young Men for a year. Um, but I look at that and I remember that. I remember how God was working my life and how he got me to the point where I was today. Here's one of uh, Jamie and I when we went on our honeymoon into uh, uh, Niagara Falls. We were going over a barrel. Uh, here's, here's one of Jamie when she was uh, a little baby. Um, here's one of the youth group uh, that we had back here in, uh, in Ohio uh, that we served over there for nine years. Here's one at uh, Jamie's uh, parents' place during the summertime. Uh, I'm laying on the grass. She has a foreign exchange student that stayed with them for a year from Germany. His name was Ruben. Here's one of Jamie, and she's in Arizona. Here's one. I was uh, traveling during the summer to some churches in New England over the summer in college, and I came back in uh, Pennsylvania there, surprised her with some roses. Uh, Here's one of Jamie and I when we were at college. I think that was uh, sophomore year. Here's another one. We were at a uh, banquet, at uh, Valentine's banquet when we were in college. And then here's one of me and my brother. Uh, My brother was getting married, and I was his best man. So I look through all these pictures, and I see all these descriptions of life. And it points back to certain points in my life and shows me what I used to be like, how I've changed over time. And and I look at those, and I can remember those things. Well, that's exactly what we're going to be looking at here in Hosea chapter number 7. God's going to pull out, if you will, the picture album, and he's going to show us pictures of what uh, the nation of Israel uh, is like. And I believe that we can sometimes see ourselves in these pictures here as well. So let's go ahead and we'll uh, jump into this. Hosea chapter number 7. And we'll begin here at verse number 1. And notice what some of the things here that God says here. Hosea chapter 7, verse number 1. First of all, we're going to look at an evil lifestyle. Hosea chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. When I would heal Israel... The iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. Now remember, we're talking here about Israel. If you remember, this was during the divided kingdom. There was the ten tribes and the two... The two tribes, you had the northern kingdom, which represented the ten tribes. You had the southern kingdom, which represented two other tribes. And God is primarily talking to the northern kingdom here. And Ephraim here was one of the ten tribes. It was like the largest tribe. It would be like saying, uh, you know, Texas is part of the United States. Okay? Still talking about the United States. We're still talking about uh, the northern tribe here. Samaria was the area in which they lived. This was the, this was the capital of, of the northern tribe here. So God is saying, look, I'm going to pull out some pictures here, uh, Israel. And I'm going to show you what kind of people that you really are. And he pulls them out. He begins to describe what kind of lifestyle that they are living. And he says here, when I would heal Israel. First, I want you to notice that God's intention is always to heal. God is always pursuing after people to heal their brokenness. God is always pursuing because he has love for them and he wants to heal their lives. And God says, I want to heal you. I want to plead with you. I want to bring your life back into harmony. But he knows what he says. He says, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. 
He says, the thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. So God's desire is to heal. But obviously here we can see the desire of these people is nothing but evil. They have a desire to do evil. Their evil deeds and iniquity, their sin, prevent them from being healed. Because they will not return back to the Lord. God says, I desire to heal you. All you have to do is return back to me. But because of their evil deeds... They're not able to be healed. They will not return back to God. So here God gives us a description, a picture of their sin. Notice what he says. He says that they deal falsely. They deal falsely. They're lying. They're stealing. They're mugging. Remember the Old Testament laws? Remember what they were? They're to love your neighbor, right? And here they are. They're doing everything contrary to what God wants them to do. They're lying, they're murdering, they're dealing falsely with people. They're not doing the primary thing of following after God's word. However, this was not their biggest problem. Their problem was not lying, their problem was not stealing, their problem was not murdering or mugging after people. Their biggest problem in life was this. Notice what it says here also in verse number 2. He says, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. The biggest problem that the nation of Israel had was not what they were doing externally. Their biggest problem lied within, and it was their heart. Because that's where all the evil deeds came from. And God says, they do not consider that I remember all of their evil. You see, God sees their evil lifestyle, and God is the judge You remember back when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they sinned? What did they do after they sinned? They hid. Why did they hide? They were ashamed. They were trying to cover up. Imagine if you would, just for a moment, if God was sitting right next to you. How would that change your life? Well, the truth is, he is sitting right next to you. (laughs) But you know what we try to do? We try to hide. We try to cover up. If there was no problem with sin, then there's really no reason why we should worry about hiding or trying to cover things up. But the truth is there is a problem with sin. There is a problem with evil. And when we live a type of lifestyle where we are not following after God, we're pursuing after other things that are not godly. We try to cover those things up. We try to hide them. But God says they do not consider that I remember all their evil. God sees everything. He knows everything. He sees the evil that surrounds them. And they are constantly before his face. God can see it all. So there's no reason for us to try to sit there and try to, you know, pull the wool over God's eyes and say, you didn't see me. But the truth is God did see it. And so that should give us a great encouragement to always be living a righteous type of lifestyle. But here, the nation of Israel thought, hey, you know what? I'm going to live my life however I choose to. And they lived an evil lifestyle. Naturally, knowing the history of ancient Israel, we'd expect someone to basically stand up and say, you know what? That's not right. You shouldn't live that way. Here in America, we have uh, people that make laws and, you know, you can't just go out and do certain things because there's a law against that. And we would expect that that would happen here. We would expect kings and princes to stand up and say, no, we are going to live this type of way. 
But unfortunately, that didn't happen because look at verse number three. Look what it says. Let's take a look at a picture that God says here. He says, by their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire. From the kneading of the dough until it is leavened, on the day of our king, the princess became sick with the heat of wine, and he stretched out his hand with mockers. So here God is showing us a picture. He's getting out a picture, and he's going to say, all right, Israel, this is what you're like. You know what you're like? You're like a heated oven. In these verses here, look at verses 6 through 7. He says, for with hearts like an oven... They approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are as hot as an oven and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen and none of them calls upon me. In these verses, God pulls out the pictures and he says, Israel, you are like a heated oven, a hot oven. He says here that the kings and the princes are the ones who are supposed to be restraining the evil. But what do they do? They take part in the evil. And they keep stoking the fire. They keep getting it hotter and hotter and hotter. And he says their anger and their intrigue and their anger smolders. They are raging so hot that the fire does not have to be stoked for hours. Their anger, their intrigue, their secret plans and schemes, their treachery, the deceptive betrayal are boiling over in the land. Because they are having and living an evil lifestyle. Well, I can remember before I came to know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. That the things that I would be involved in and the things that I would do. My life was consumed by those things. And I was continually pursuing after them. And God says, this is a picture of Israel here. He says, it's like a raging oven. Keeps popping in wood more and more and more. And the fire is just getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. And this is a picture of them. Look at verse number 6. It says, all night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. They are passionate. But they are passionate about the wrong types of things. You know, I think you should be passionate in life. I think you should have passion for Jesus Christ. But there are things that we can be passionate about that are not righteous things. And God says here that this nation of Israel was passionate about an evil lifestyle. We understand and know that what ended up happening here to the nation of Israel, because they were so passionate about their evil lifestyle, that God brought in judgment to the nation here and destroyed them, leveled them in 732 B.C. God destroyed them because they were so passionate about their evil lifestyle. Notice some other things here. So we have an evil lifestyle. Look at verse number 7. He says, all of them are as hot as an oven and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen and none calls upon me, God says. They devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen. During this time in history... Israel had a total of, I think it was about six kings. Four of them were assassinated. 
It was like one king would rise to power and because of the hot oven, because of all the, the rage, all because of the evil passions, a guy would rise to power. Here comes this guy. Whack. Boom. He's dead. He rises up to king. All right, man. Now I'm king. Boom. You're dead. I mean, this was what was going on because of their evil lifestyle that they had. Their wickedness was destroying everybody, even the kings. But the last line of this scripture is the most dire statement. It says, none calls upon me. I mean, can you imagine? This is the nation of Israel. These are the people that saw God bring the waters apart. And they heard the stories how God provided in the wilderness. And they heard what God had done for them. And now they're living a lifestyle evil. And yet they're killing everybody. Their wickedness is killing everybody. Their nation is being destroyed by wickedness. What we see here is that everybody was ignoring God. We see people just living their own type of life without a thought of God. They were living as if God did not exist. God says, I'm going to show you what you look like, Israel. This is the picture of you. This is the type of life that you are living. You're living a life as though you don't give a care about God. Godless living was not just a temptation for people back then. It's a temptation for us even today. I have in my office a book. It's called The Christian Atheist. And basically it talks about how people live their life. Christians live their life as even though God is not even on their radar. It's so easy for us to do. To even come to a, to a meeting like this and we gather together for worship. But yet, you know what's on our mind? Well, I sure hope he'll be done soon. We're going to go eat. Yum. Can't wait. Really? Or you know what we're doing? We're, we're taking mental notes in our minds of things that we got to do today. But yet, we do not listen. We do not hear from God. And it's so easy to live that type of life. We live in a culture that ignores God and minimalizes God and treats the idea of God as a silly thought. But there is an almighty God who controls this universe and he's in control of us. And he is there to direct our lives and move upon our hearts. But we must allow him to do so. We must turn to the Lord. All of our life is to be lived under the lordship of Jesus. If you are a believer in Jesus and you know him, your life should be lived under his lordship. Every day, every hour, every minute, how often do we go through life without giving Jesus a second thought? How often do we live life as if there is no God? How often do we as a group of Christ followers, we here as a group of Christ followers, Together live for Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus' desire here is to heal us, to bless us, to pour out his love upon us. But godless living does not allow that to happen. In fact, it removes us from allowing God to pour out his blessing upon us. So this is an evil lifestyle that God says that they have. And he pulls out his picture and he says, Israel, this is what you look like. Notice here another thing here. So not only an evil lifestyle, but mixed up people. Look at Hosea chapter 7 verses 8 through 10. It says Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is like a cake that's not turned. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. 
The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. The people of Israel could tell that something was wrong. They went through the photo album and they looked and they said, Oh my word, what happened there? And they started looking. And they knew that something was wrong. And so you know what they did? They decided to mix themselves with others to try to, I guess, kind of rectify the situation. The right solution was to return to the Lord, but instead they sought protection and help from other nations. Remember what Israel said, I got all my lovers from? Remember, here, remember the picture where they were sitting at the kitchen table? And the husband is pleading with his wife and saying, Honey, please return back to me. Please come back home. And the wife's getting up from the table and she's saying, No, I'm going to go get my coat on, which my lovers gave me. And I'm going to put on my rings, which my lovers gave me. You didn't give me all of this. And the husband's saying, No, honey, you're confused. I gave you everything. And here Israel is running to other nations for protection. He's running to Israel. She's, she's running there to, to try to gain some things from these other foreign nations. We even saw Israel running to Assyria for help. And as you know, as the story ends, that God actually uses that nation of Assyria to bring destruction to Israel. The problem is that they were mixing with other nations, with other people, rather than belonging wholly to God. The problem with mixing with other nations was not a racial issue. It was a religious issue. God says, you are running after these other nations. You're running after other gods. And you will not return to me, God says. So God turns the page in the photo album. And again, he pulls out another picture for us to look at. And he gives us a description now. Of the nation of Israel. Notice what he says. He says that they are a cake not turned. A cake that had to be flipped so both sides would bake evenly. God says you are half baked Israel. You're not done. He says you've been pulled out of the oven prematurely. It's not, it's not looking too good for you. He says here that they have gray hairs that are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. How many of you remember maybe looking through some pictures and you're like, wow, look at my hair back then. Some of you are like, whoa, I don't know what was going on back then. (laughs) But now if you were to take a picture and you compare the two photos, you might look and you might say, well, look at that. I had black hair. Now I have gray hair. Jamie was, uh, when we were, I think it was a couple weeks ago, she was cutting my hair. And as she was cutting my hair, she like stopped and she started kind of like going through my hair. And she's like, oh, look, I found your first gray hair. (laughs) Thanks. But God says here, he says, he says to the nation here, he says, you have gray hairs that are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. You're getting older and you're getting more feeble, Israel. You're getting more vulnerable. Israel is slowly getting more vulnerable, but they don't even realize it. Even though they are getting weaker and weaker, their pride stops them from returning back to God. 
Notice in verse number 10, is the solution for them was right there. Notice what he says there. He says all they had to do was to return to the Lord, but they wouldn't do it. You see, that is the problem with pride. Pride keeps us from acknowledging to God that we need his help. Pride says to ourselves, and we say, you know what? I can do this myself. I don't need God's help. I don't need a helping hand. I don't need a crutch. I can do it myself. And that's exactly what Israel was doing here. Running to the other nations, saying, you know what? Will you help us? Well, God says he'll help us, but we really don't need his help. We'll go to these other things for help. And their pride kept them from returning back to God. We think we don't need his help, that we can do it on our own. We refuse humility by submitting and yielding to God. And we miss out on the love that he has for us. We miss out on the blessings that he desires to pour out upon our lives, all because of pride, because we think we know better than God. Let's look at another picture that God describes for us here, for the people here. So we got mixed up people. And look what he says here. In verses 11 through 12, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. So not only is Israel a hot oven... A half-baked cake and a man that's slowly getting old. But God now pulls out another picture and he says, all right, Israel, you want to see what you're like? He says, you're like a dove, silly and senseless, going back and forth, back and forth. You run over to Egypt for help. You run over to Assyria for help. But yet you will, you will not return back to me because of your pride. Israel was going back and forth to Egypt and also to Assyria for protection. They are silly and without sense, he says. And they, they, by doing this, they went straight to their destruction. I can't tell you how many times I've heard of people that, that do everything that they can in life, going to other things except for returning to God who can control their situation and who can offer forgiveness and help in their life. But yet they go after other things. And a lot of times those things that they run after end up becoming their very destruction in life. And it's so sad. We live here in this community and people that are so broken and and bruised and beaten and battered. And yet they run after other things except Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ says, I will heal you, I will offer forgiveness, I'll offer hope. They say, no, I don't need that. That's not for me. And they return to other things that end up becoming their destruction. And that can be said of our own lives as well as Christians, as believers in Jesus. Jesus says, I want you to come to me with your burdens. I want you to come to me with all of your trials and difficulties because I want to enable you and help you. And yet what we do is we say, you know what, Jesus, that's okay. I got it figured out. I'm going to go to my friends for help. They're going to help me. And we leave Jesus Christ out of the picture. We're like a dove, silly and without sense. And we fly back and forth, back and forth, 
but never return back to the Lord. God wanted his people to belong wholly to him. He wanted them to be his most prized and precious possession. His commandment to his people was to be holy as I am holy. As he said in Leviticus 11 uh, verses 44 through 45. Leviticus 19 to Leviticus 20 verse number 7. And Leviticus 20 verse number 26. Be ye holy for I am holy. Holy means to be morally pure and good. Holy means to be set apart. The, uh, the people here were to be set apart for God's particular use. But yet they decided, I don't want that. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to fly back and forth from Egypt to Assyria. And I don't want to return to the Lord. They were not supposed to be just like every other nation. They were supposed to particularly belong to God. They were supposed to be different because they belong to a holy God. And it's no different for us today. If you have made Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior of your life, you belong wholly to him. Got married, we stood on a, on a platform kind of like this, and we made pledges to one another. We made a commitment to one another. And we said, I will wholly belong to you. And she said, I will wholly belong to you. My wife is not content with me having her plus other lovers. Nor am I content with having her plus other lovers. We are wholly together because we belong to each other. And God says, you belong to me. I have purchased you with my own blood. And he says, when you made me your Lord of your life, he says, I want to be exclusively yours. And he says, this is what I want from you. I want you to be wholly mine, to be ye holy, for I am holy. God desires to pour out his blessing upon us. God desires to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. But what do we have to do? We have to make him wholly his, ours in our life. We got to make him exclusively his in our life. So, but what happens? What happens when I, me, Mike Bird, what happens when I mix and blend in with everybody else in the world? Sometimes our lives are so indistinguishable from those who don't know Jesus Christ. We may throw in a little Jesus here and there, but in reality, we haven't allowed him to radically transform our lives. Rather than belonging wholly to Jesus, we mix him with other influences in our lives. For us to truly follow Jesus Christ, he must be the absolute Lord of our life. This means that we are humbly submitting to him in all things. We don't just consult God's word as one of the things. This is it. There is nothing else. We don't say, well, you know what, I'll see what Jesus has to say, and then I'll see what these other people have to say, and then I'll just kind of make a decision. No. Are you a fan of Jesus, or are you a follower of Jesus? There's a great difference between the two. The fans sit on the sidelines, and they go, yeah, Jesus, woohoo! But the followers of Jesus are following right behind him even when it leads to things that might be hard and difficult in our life. 
You remember when Jesus was walking with his disciples, and there was a great multitude of people following him? You know what he always did? He always turned around. He said, here is the standard of which you must meet if you're going to be a follower of me. And each time he did that, many people left from following the Lord. When he did that one time, all that was left was his original 12 disciples. And he said, are you also going to leave? Are you also going to go away? You know what they told him? They said, Lord, we don't have anywhere to go. We just want to follow you. We just want to follow you. So if you're going to be a follower of the Lord, you must determine in your life that you're not going to run to and fro in other things. You must make Jesus the primary person, the Lord of your life, that he has absolute rule and authority in your life. Let's look here at another thing here. So we got here mixed up people, silly, without sense. They're like doves. But here's a simple solution that God offers. Notice what he says in Hosea 7, 13 through 14. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart. But they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gnash upon themselves. They rebel against me. And look here at also... Beginning in verse number 15 and 16. Although I train and strengthen their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of their insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. In the last four verses here, God gives us one more picture. He pulls out the family album. And he says, okay, Israel, this is what you look like. This is, he gives a description of their sin. He says in these verses, he says that the people are like a treacherous bow. A crooked bow that can't shoot arrows straight. How many of you in here bow hunt? Okay, a few of you. All right. Oh, I got, even got a lady here that bow hunts. How important is it to have a bow that can shoot? Important, right? Can you imagine going into battle with a defective weapon? I mean, here's an army coming against you, and you're like sword. You know that the metal wasn't tempered right, and by the when next strike the guy gives, it's going to break apart your sword. That would be a horrible plight to be in, wouldn't it? Well, here God says, Israel, you're like a treacherous bow. You're like an, a bow that, that can't even shoot straight. It's crooked. He says it's a bow that's good for nothing. And what God makes clear here is that all of their sin is against him. Notice in these verses, look at verses verses 13 through 16. Notice how many times God says here that the sin is against him. He says here, woe to them for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine, and they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I train and strengthen their arms, yet they devise evil against me. God says, All of your sin, Israel, is against me. And you're like a treacherous bow, a crooked bro, a bow that can't even shoot straight. You're good for nothing, is what God says. The most important issue in our lives is not our finances. 
It's not our family. It's not our relationships or our job or our friends. The most important issue of life, in life, is how our relationship is with God. Because if this relationship is not right, then none of these other relationships will ever be right. We can try so hard to to work with people and try to be a nice person and be moral and all this kind of stuff. But this relationship is what matters most. And God says, everything that Israel has done in life, they've done it against me. He says, their relationship between me and them is not right. And he pulls out a picture. He says, this is what you look like, Israel. You look like a treacherous bow. God made you and God made me. And we owe our life to him. Every breath we have is a gift from him. And throughout this chapter, God makes it very clear of how important the relationship is with his people by giving them subtle statements throughout just even this chapter about calling them back to himself. Listen to some of these in Hosea 7, 7. He says, none calls upon me. In verses uh, 10, Hosea 7, yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him. In verse number 14, for they have strayed from me. In Hosea 7, 16, they return, but not upward. God is pleading for his people to return back to him. And there is a simple solution to all of this. Simply return. That's it. God says, do you not realize how simple it would be for you and me to have our relationship back together? Just simply return. That's all God desires. That's all he wants. But here's the nation of Israel saying, no, 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 no. I, I got to figure it out. I got to figure it out. D- hold on, God. Hold on. This, this, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. Okay. I'm going to go over to Assyria. I'm, I'm going to talk with them. Then I'm going to run over to Egypt. I'm going get to some, get some advice. And uh, then we're going we're gonna to go back to the altar. We're going to make some sacrifices to show you that we still love you. You know? But God says, you're missing the point. He says, I just want you to return back to me. That's it. We tend to ignore God when we respond to our sin. Rather than turning to him, we try to clean up our act on our own. We vow to try harder. We try to fix it ourselves. We have conversations with ourselves. You ever done that? Driving down the road. Man, what an idiot I was. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this better th- this next time. I'm going to fix this. But the problem is, it all becomes about us. And we leave God out of the picture. Instead of returning back to him so simply, we run after other things. In verse 16, it really shows us how depraved we really are. Notice what he says. They return, but not upward. We do something to try to make things right. But we do not turn to Jesus. You know, Jesus never told us to try and fix it ourselves. Throughout the New Testament, even in the Gospels, every picture that Jesus gives us, when people return back to him, they never tried to fix it themselves. They simply came to Jesus Christ and they submitted to him. We read about the woman in Mark chapter number 5 that had the issue of blood many, many years. 
She tried everything. Everything. Every doctor. Every quack in town. She tried them all. Says that when she heard of Jesus, she said, but if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I could be made whole. She did that. We see people that are broken and they come to Christ and they say, I give up. I give up. Jesus, I'm turning to you. I give up. And Jesus takes them just like they are. Sinners. At the heart of the gospel is that we cannot fix things ourselves. We cannot make things right ourselves. Regardless of how hard we try, we cannot do it. But Jesus can and Jesus did. Have you strayed away from Christ this week? Instead of running towards other things, all we must simply do is just return back to God. Say, God, here I am. I really screwed things up. I would say the greatest picture that God has in his word is when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Bible says that he, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, and that while we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so God displayed his perfect love towards us by sending his son Jesus to die for us who were sinners, so that we could be made holy and righteous by simply just turning and trusting him. I, Mike Bird, am not trusting that I'm going to heaven because I'm a preacher, because I do nice things, because I work at a church, because I say prayers, because I give an offering. I, Mike Bird, am going to heaven because I have put my personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. I, Mike Bird, have a relationship with God, not because I can do wonderful things, because I can't. I'm not a great person, because I'm not. I have a relationship with God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I have that personal, intimate relationship with Him. And when I falter, when I mess up, when I stray away from God and His Word, you know what my first, my first reaction as always is? I can tell you it's not God. It's, I'm going to try to fix this. But then God has to pull out his picture and he has to say, hey, let me show you what you look like. Let me show you what you look like. And I have to give it a personal reflection in my heart and I have to say, God, yeah, you're right. I do look like that. God, help me return back to you. And in simple repentance, simple faith, I just turn back to God. Let's pray together.